Welcome to tape number 10 of the series What We Catholics Believe. This tape is about the Mass and the Blessed Sacrament of the Altar, or the Eucharist as it's called. Sadly, too many Catholics are absent from Mass today. We're told they find it boring. But I don't think they would find it boring if they realised what, what is actually happening at Mass. They were taught what happens. Now one way to teach this is by explaining the importance of sacrifice. There's a universal human recognition of our need to offer sacrifice to God. Even pagans, any pagan society that is found, believes that they must sacrifice. And of course in the Old Testament, we see sacrifice all the way through. From the time of Abel through to Abraham, the mysterious Melchizedek, Moses, and once the temple was built, a continued line of sacrifice in the temple. This um, belief, so universal, is a realisation that mankind is not just penniless, but actually in God's debt. We need to give him honour and thanks. We need to satisfy him for our sins. And we need to ask for our needs, spiritual and temporal, and the needs of others. And the way we do that, everyone does that, is through sacrifice. Now at Calvary, on the first Good Friday, Jesus repaid this debt once and for all. He is the Lamb of God, the victim who was offered up. He's also the eternal High Priest who sacrificed himself for our sins. So now, there is no need for other sacrifices. And indeed, there are no more sacrifices offered in the Jewish temple. The temple isn't standing any longer. They ceased round about the time that the Messiah came. Because there's no need, as I say, for more sacrifices now. The sacrifice of Calvary covers all our needs. And because God is not in time... St. Paul tells us in his seventh chapter of his letter to the Hebrews, Jesus' priestly office is unchanging, and this sacrifice continues forever. That's why the book of Revelation describes Jesus in heaven as a lamb standing upright, yet slain in sacrifice. Every time the Mass is said, Jesus' perpetual offering of himself in heaven breaks through to earth. And if we are present at Mass, we are given the privilege of joining with him in offering Calvary to the Father as he offers it now. The Mass is, in all essentials, the same sacrifice as Calvary. Because the victim is the same victim, Christ. And the priest is the same priest, Christ, offering himself through the ministry of his priests, who are other Christs. The only difference 
is the manner of the offering. Now Jesus prepared for this perpetual sacrifice at the Mass at the Last Supper on Monday Thursday on the evening before he died. He anticipated Calvary and in the upper room he ordained his apostles, his first priests by showing them how to say Mass taking bread and saying this is my body and then taking the wine this is my blood and then giving them the power the duty to do it too after he had gone and of course that's what the apostles did in the Acts we see them talking about this breaking of bread and the pattern of the Mass has not changed in any essentials from those very early days. We still have a letter written by St. Justin Martyr, who died in 165 AD, describing how even then, in the second century, Christians met on Sundays, like we do, and after listening to the readings from Scripture and a homily from the priest, they took bread and wine up to the altar for the priest to consecrate. Then the priest gives thanks to God, St. Justin says, for a considerable time, concluding with an Amen from the congregation, and Holy Communion is distributed. They even had a sort of collection, because he tells us that those who had plenty brought gifts for the poor. Now that's a description, a brief description of the Mass, which has been said continuously ever since Jesus died on the cross on Calvary. The centre of the Mass is now, as it was then and has always been, the consecration when the priest, using the power invested in him at his ordination, changes the bread and then the wine into the body and blood of the living Christ, bringing God down onto the altar before a hushed congregation who are kneeling in adoration. This change is a great mystery. But it's possible, of course, as all things are possible to God. And we believe in it through faith. But the church has explored it a little. And you might like to explain to your hearers that although the appearance of bread and wine, which are called the accidents, remain exactly as they were before the consecration, what the bread and wine really is, the underlying substance, is changed. Now I'm not talking nonsense, I'm not contradicting myself. The appearance, the accidents remain, the substance changes. Every material thing that you can think of or see consists of accidents and substance. For instance, I am now sitting at a table 
which is wooden and oblong. And outside in my garden, I have another table, which is metal and round. Now they're both tables. That is, they have the same substance. Everyone would recognise them as tables. But they each have quite different appearances because they have different accidents. So the consecration, the substance of the bread and wine, is changed into the substance of the living Christ, leaving the accidents or appearance intact, exactly as they were before. This change is called transubstantiation, a word coined by the Council of Trent in the 16th century. You don't have to use it unless you feel it would be helpful. If you're talking to very young children, you might have to leave it for later. But it doesn't hurt for you to have it yourself as a background knowledge. That's what we mean when we say the bread and wine are changed into the living Christ at the consecration. And of course, although the priest consecrates them separately, the bread, when he says, this is my body, the bread becomes the living Christ, the resurrected Christ. And that means it becomes his body and his blood, his soul and his divinity, the whole Christ is present in each host and each part of a host. And when he says over the chalice, this is my blood, that too becomes the living Christ. Body, blood, soul and divinity. The church teaches Jesus is whole and entire under either kind. It can't be any other way because Jesus is alive. And once you separate the body and blood of somebody, they're no longer living. So if we have a living Christ there, we have Jesus under either kind. So you can receive a host or even a part of a host. And you still receive our blessed Lord. Now obviously this is a very holy thing. It makes the Mass holy. It makes each of our communions very holy. So when you're preparing children for Holy Communion, you must be extremely thorough. These children are going to receive God himself. They need to know and understand what a tremendous privilege that is. At one time, only adults or near adults went to Holy Communion. People thought, quite understandably, little children won't appreciate how holy this is. They won't be reverent enough. They won't pray carefully enough. So people waited till they were 14 or 16, whatever age the bishop thought was suitable, before they were even prepared for their first communion. My parents both received their first communions when they were 16. And saints like St. Bernadette didn't go to Holy Communion until they were 14 or 16. But this was changed at the beginning of the 20th century, when Pope St. Pius X was made Pope. Now, he had spent a lot of time 
teaching young children himself when he was a parish priest and even when he was a bishop. He realised how important it was. He enjoyed doing it. And of course, by doing it, he soon realised that if children are carefully taught, they can appreciate as well as we can that it is our Lord they're receiving. And remembering how dearly Jesus loves little children, when he became Pope, he altered this ruling. He said that children could receive Holy Communion and confession, of course, when they reached the age of reason, seven or thereabouts. But he stipulated only if they have been very carefully prepared. They must know exactly what they are doing and understand as far as they can. Now probably the best way to prepare the children is the way Jesus prepared the apostles. Because when he said at the Last Supper, holding a piece of flat unleavened bread, this is my body, they all believed him. And it was an astonishing thing to say. But the reason they believed was because over the three years they had been spending with him, he had been preparing them. He had shown them his power over material things by his miracles. Particularly miracles like the miracle at Cana, when he turned water into wine without even getting up from the place where he was sitting, just by using his will. And of course, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Not in just because of what happened then, feeding an enormous crowd of 5,000 with two fish, five loaves, which was an astonishing miracle, which made the people who were fed absolutely amazed. But even more because of what followed afterwards, and the teaching he gave those people when they came back to him, wanting him to stay with them because of the miracle he'd worked. If you read the last part of the chapter 6 of St John's Gospel, you see him telling those people, One day I shall give you myself to eat and drink. You will eat my flesh and drink my blood. He repeats it four or five times. And that they didn't like at all. They found that shocking. They found it impossible. They just wouldn't accept it. Unfortunately, they didn't think far enough to say, well, yesterday he did something else that was impossible. Perhaps he can do impossible things. They decided this was going too far. They turned round and they walked away from him. And they never walked with him again. And Jesus let them go. He must have been sad, but he let them go. He didn't call them back and say, hey, wait a minute, I only meant it symbolically. Because he couldn't. He didn't mean it symbolically. He meant it literally. He gives us himself to eat and drink. And that's why we have his life in us. No, he watched them go. And he even turned to his apostles and said, are you going to go as well? Now the apostles hadn't understood what he'd said, but they knew him well enough to trust him. 
And St. Peter, as I say, that usually they're spokesmen, said, Lord, we don't understand, but where could we go? You have the words of eternal life. He meant, there's no one else we can go to, no one else teaches like you do. And of course the apostles stayed. They didn't understand. And they weren't going to understand properly until the Last Supper. Very important when we're teaching children to emphasize that when they go up to Holy Communion, they receive Almighty God. There's no point in making it any less or pretending they don't. They are receiving God. And I would never use the word bread, although Jesus talked about himself being the bread of life. That may confuse them. After the consecration, there is no bread in the host. It may look like bread, taste like bread, but it's not bread. It's God himself, the living Christ. There's a little rhyme I teach the children I prepare that they can say as they walk up to the altar helps them to approach reverently and thoughtfully. It helps them realize what they're doing. It's only two lines. Jesus, thou art coming, holy as thou art. Thou the God who made me, to my loving heart. If they say that and think what they're saying, then they will receive our Lord lovingly and reverently. Reverence is very important. It underlines, it states our faith. It's being realistic. It's living in the real world if we're reverent. We're in the presence of Almighty God. We can't be too reverent. We don't behave reverently. We can undermine our own faith and the faith of others who see us. They say, if we don't behave the way we believe, and that means being reverent if we're in the presence of God, then soon we begin to believe the way we're behaving. And we stop believing the truths that we've been taught. So teach the children to be reverent. Set an example of reverence, always. And you must teach them, even though they're young, and it won't affect them at the moment, that they should always be in a state of grace to receive our blessed Lord in Holy Communion. They need to be taught because later on, a situation may arise when they have missed Mass deliberately through their own fault or committed some other very serious sin, a mortal sin, which means that they have lost the grace in their soul and will not be replaced until they have been to confession, received absolution and been forgiven. Now, if they're in that state, of course they have to go to Mass if it's a Sunday, like every Catholic. But they cannot receive Holy Communion until they have been to confession and put themselves right. And it's very important to teach them that because St. Paul warned us. People who receive Holy Communion in a state of sin eat and drink damnation to themselves. It's a sacrilegious Holy Communion. And of course, every communion should always be loving and prayerful. Little children need to be taught prayers to say before communion, just short, simple prayers to prepare themselves. 
And of course, in the Mass, they need to be shown the prayers in the Mass that are going to help them. Everybody all together says the prayer that the centurion made up when he came to Jesus and asked for his servant to be cured. You remember Jesus began to get to his feet to go with him. And he said, he was a Roman, not a Jew even. He said, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you. Say but the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus was very pleased with him for understanding that and saying that. And that's why we use that prayer now. At that point in Mass, just before we receive our Lord and Holy Communion, we changed, of course, one word to make it make sense for us. We say, Jesus, we say, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you. Say but the word and my soul will be healed. None of us are worthy to receive Jesus. But we do receive him because we love him, because he's worked this marvellous miracle so that we can, and because he loves us so much he wants to come to us in Holy Communion. But we tell him before Communion, I am not worthy to receive you. Say but the word, and my soul will be healed will be made more worthy. And children also need help with prayers after Holy Communion. You don't want them sitting there daydreaming, not paying attention to our blessed Lord's presence in their soul. Teach them prayers to say simple prayers. Let them talk to Jesus as informally and as naturally as possible. That's why he's come to them, because he wants them to talk to him. He loves them. I hope that once they understand all this, and anything else you can find out about the Mass to tell your youngsters, they will be as eager to go to Mass as their grandparents always were. And they will even be prepared to die for it, as so many English martyrs did in the 16th century. When the Mass was taken away from the Catholics, And of course the reformers took the mass away because they knew that was the way to destroy the church in this country. There was a tremendous amount of feeling among ordinary Catholic people. There was the pilgrimage of grace coming down from the north of England to plead with the king to replace the mass, which sadly never got there because they were killed. The uprising, the western uprising from Cornwall and Devon Again, just ordinary people, farm workers, farmers, men, but not professional soldiers, not even armed men. They just walked up to London. They thought they would talk to the king, the young king, Edward VI, and say to him, look, we want our mass back. But of course they never got as far as London. When word got through that this great body of people was walking along towards London, uh, German mercenaries were sent to put them down, and they were massacred. And their wives and families, waiting on the farms and homes, back in Cornwall and Devon, realised eventually that they'd lost their menfolk, and they weren't coming back. But there was a lot of feeling, because they loved the Mass. They knew how wonderful it was, and they didn't want to lose it for a prayer service. And they were right. And that's how our youngsters should feel, how we should all feel. 
Anyway, however enthusiastic we are, all Catholics are obliged to attend Mass every Sunday, unless they're prevented by reason of illness or some other serious problem, which means they can't get there and it's not their fault. This has been the Church teaching since the 4th century. Apparently before that, everyone was so enthusiastic they didn't need to be told. But once the persecution stopped and people got a little bit more relaxed, the church made it quite clear. We go to Mass every Sunday if you're a Catholic. It's been taught consistently down the history of the church. It's repeated in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1992, and in the Pope's apostolic letter, Deus Domini, <clears throat> in 1998. If we deliberately don't choose to go to Mass when we could, we are breaking two of the Ten Commandments. The first commandment says most emphatically that we must worship God and not put anything before him, not any false idols, money, pleasure, whatever, other people even. We worship God. We belong to God. And the way to worship God is at Mass. And the third commandment tells us to keep the Sabbath day holy. And the Sabbath, for Catholics, is Sunday. It was changed from the Jewish Sabbath of Saturday because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. And Jesus sent the Holy Spirit down on the church on a Sunday. So the very early Christians put the Sabbath onto Sunday. As you see, Justin Martyr, writing in the second century, says it was Sunday that they used to meet. So we keep those commandments by going to Mass on Sunday. I think we need reminding about this now, because sadly, there are some churches where you can't get Mass on a Sunday because of the shortage of priests. Well, if that happens to your church, and you can possibly get to another church, not if you've got a car, or if it's within walking distance, you can get to a nearby parish. Then you travel to that nearby church, and you hear Mass. Because a lay-led communion or Eucharistic service does not fulfil the Sunday obligation. It doesn't offer honour and worship to God the way the Mass does. It can't make up for our sins. Whatever anyone else says, if Mass is at all reachable, and in this country it shouldn't be that difficult, we go to Mass on Sunday. And we help other people to go. You know someone who hasn't got a car, needs a lift, you take them. The Mass and our Lord's presence in the Blessed Sacrament are our greatest treasures in the Church. We must cherish them and appreciate them. And that means by frequenting them, certainly every Sunday, and more often if we possibly can. Now we're going to continue with the mysteries of the Holy Rosary. And the mysteries we're doing at the moment are about the passion and suffering of our Lord. We've reached the fourth sorrowful mystery. This is when Jesus carries his cross along the Via Dolorosa, way of the cross up to Calvary once 
Pilate had agreed he could be condemned to death. The soldiers took him down to the courtyard and they put on his shoulders the heavy crossbar of the crucifix he was going to be nailed to. And he started carrying it up and it's uphill all the way up the hill of Calvary. On the way, early on the way, he met his mother. And he must have felt great anguish when he saw her sorrowful face as soon as she caught sight of him and saw all the suffering he'd already endured and was still enduring. She knew now what Holy Simeon meant 33 years before when he'd said, A sword will pierce your soul. She couldn't help him, but she could accompany him. And she walked up the way of the cross parallel with him. She would have seen the centurion and order the soldiers to get Simon of Cyrene, who was one of the people watching him, to help him. They were afraid that he would die before he actually reached Calvary and not live to be crucified, because he was now so weak from loss of blood and because of his suffering. So Simon of Cyrene helped with the cross. But Jesus still stumbled and fell, partly because he couldn't see where he was going. The crown of thorns was bleeding all the time. The blood was coming down his face. His hands were tied. He couldn't do anything about it. But a Roman matron who saw this happening felt so sorry for him. She ran out of her house carrying a towel and wiped his face so that he could see. And the tradition says that he worked a miracle and the visage of his face appeared on the towel. Jesus met the women of Jerusalem as he walked and they were weeping for him and he stopped to speak to them. And as he spoke to them, he, taught, he prophesied the fall of Jerusalem, 70 AD. And then he walked on. It's a narrow way. If you've been there, you'll realise what it must have been like. Narrow, crowded, and it would have been crowded, with shops, which would have been shops then, people busy. Nobody was going to take a lot of notice. They went about their business, just somebody else going up to be crucified. And Jesus walked up with Mary, his mother, St. John, the Apostle, Mary Magdalene, and Mary Cleophas. Then he went through the gates of the Great Wall, and he was outside the town, and he began to climb the steep part of the Hill of Calvary. Now at this point, Our Lady and St. John, his friends, would have been restrained and kept back. The Roman soldiers always separated the friends of the person to be crucified at that point so that they could be allowed to carry on with the crucifixion without interruption. So Our Lady must have watched him. And the place where they stood is still marked in Jerusalem. Watched him climb slowly up the steepest part of the hill. There are steps in it now, but you can tell how steep it must have been then. And that must have been very difficult for someone who'd lost so much blood and was feeling so weak. But Jesus struggled on until he got to the top of the hill where he was going to be crucified. And the next mystery, we think about his crucifixion and death. So the carrying of the cross is the story we think about while we are saying the Our Father and Hail Marys of this mystery. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. O my Jesus, forgive us our sins, and save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you very much for listening. Next tape will be on the moral law and the sacrament of penance. Hope you'll be able to listen to that too. May God bless you all.